0: Hello and welcome to the New Books in Global Ethics and Politics Podcast. I'm John McMahon from the Graduate Center CUNY, one of your hosts for the channel. I have the distinct pleasure of talking to Henry Shu for this episode about his recent book, Climate Justice, Vulnerability and Protection, which came out from Oxford University Press in 2014. Shue, a professor of politics and international relations at Merton College, Oxford, is collecting in this book essays from 25 years or so of writing on the intersection of international normative theory, philosophy of human rights, and Climate Ethics and Climate Justice, and it's a very interesting text I encourage people to read, especially for the opportunity to see the way that shoe's thinking as well as the science about climate change evolves over time. We touch upon that a little bit in our conversation, which focuses on questions about justice and international inequality, justice between generations, Basic Rights, Renewable Energies, the Relationship Between Philosophy and the Empirical Sciences, and much, much more. So again, I urge you to go check out the book, Climate Justice, Vulnerability and Protection, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Henry Shu. I'm now speaking with Henry Shu, who is Professor of Politics and International Relations at Merton College, Oxford, and also a senior research fellow at the Center for International Studies. Henry, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Good to meet you, John. Nice to meet you as well. I was hoping perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about your background and your research, and especially how this particular book, Climate Justice, fits in the arc of your work.
1: At that time, I was teaching in the Ethics and Public Life program at uh, Cornell, and that was a very interdisciplinary uh, program. So i among others, I I ran into agricultural economists uh, from the agriculture school. And one of them said to me, I, I hear you know about ethics. Uh, can you tell us about the ethics of climate change? And I said, sorry, uh, there are no, uh, you know, all purpose principles of ethics that you can just apply everywhere and and i don't know anything about climate change so i can't really help you but and so you know he began to try to convince me that this was one of the major problems of our time and uh pretty quickly (laughs) that was quite clear so i tried to learn a little bit about it this was back 1989 90 and uh So for the last 25 years, I've been trying to understand the the climate change itself and also uh, see what um, help philosophers can be in uh, sorting out the ethical questions.
0: And could you maybe tell us a little about this particular collection and kind of what was the impetus for collecting these particular essays together and putting them out at this time?
1: Well, people had been telling me for years that I I should get them all in one place. <laughs> in my effort to uh, reach out beyond uh, philosophy departments, I, I had placed a lot of them in uh, you know journals in other fields and uh, collections edited by people in other fields, and so uh, they actually were hard to to find and. Uh, also, I, I had realized that as the science moved, our uh, understanding of the, the questions also needed to move. And so I hope there was a kind of, uh, uh, I don't want to call it progress necessarily, but <laughs> a, a yeah, an evolution of my understanding that might be uh, at least an interesting example of somebody struggling with a problem. So what, what, there is here is, my, is 17 of my essays about uh, justice and climate change. Uh, I tried to leave out ones that uh, were repetitive, and so just get one that made a, a, some kind of contribution, although in a couple of cases I, a contribution that I now don't think is quite right, but that, can, I hope, is instructive in its own way.
0: No, I definitely think so. And I mean it's, you know, I, I certainly noticed as I was making my way through the book that kind of the following the track of both your thinking and also the science on climate and the way those two things interacted is one of the kind of many very um fascinating and very important things that this book is doing. So I very much enjoyed that. Um Perhaps right. as we as we start to turn to the book a little bit, um I was hoping you could maybe talk some about the particular nexus of climate change and international normative theory and kind of how that particular field evolved as is reflected in the book itself.
1: Okay. Um, We uh, often approach problems, I think, as if, you know, at a very abstract level, as if there's some group of agents and we have to come up with some principles that will govern those agents, but without thinking very much about, uh, the features of the agents, but in this case, of course, we have a world that's uh, deeply unequal. There are very poor countries where children regularly starve to death, and there are extremely rich societies where people live in luxury the way a lot of Americans do. And so I've tried um, to keep in mind (laughs) that when one asks a, a question like how should the burdens of dealing with climate change be allocated that we're not allocating, uh, among just kind of nondescript or, or, or identical agents, but among people, uh, who are at very different stages of, of economic and, and political development. So we're working against an extremely unequal world, uh, that's been the kind of uh, the fundamental thing for example i mean the as i think all your listeners will will understand that uh, climate change is produced by the emissions or pollution that comes from our use of energy and we have to reduce uh those emissions produced by the energy on the other hand many poor countries need, among other things, but really very crucially, to use more energy. So there's this sort of fundamental question, how do the poor people of the world, including poor people in rich societies, but I'm, I'm mainly focused on the international questions, how do the poor countries develop more vibrant economies that, improve the lives of their people, which, as far as we can see, use more energy, while the necessity with climate change is to reduce emissions from energy. So that's been the kind of underlying problem uh, that, uh, sorry, there was some street noise. That's (laughs) problem. The underlying problem that i that I've tried to keep a focus on
0: and kind of how then does human rights and particularly perhaps your your work in basic rights inform the particular perspective you take to these questions?
1: Well, I made a quite conscious decision which m- may or may not have been right that i since I had a book on on Basic rights. I, I didn't want to keep referring to it as if um, what I had climate change only followed if you happen to agree with that book. So in the first, at least, well, more than the first half of the of the essays, I, I tried not to explicitly invoke human rights, but talk about the problems. Strictly, in terms of international justice in general, and tried to invoke invoke what I thought were widely accepted principles that are compatible of course with being committed to basic rights as I understand basic rights, but without referring to the rights all the time, actually more recently uh, my uh Colleague and, and friend at Oxford, Simon Caney, has started saying to me, "Sometimes you write about human rights, and sometimes you write about climate change, but you don't ever write about <laughs> human rights and climate change." So now the last couple of essays uh, in the book, I've tried to to uh, to talk explicitly about that connection. But uh, a lot of what one what needs to be said, I think, can be said on the basis of middle-level principles of justice that would be acceptable to people whose theory is right-based and to people uh, whose theory is not right-based.
0: Yeah, so let's kind of get into that some. So maybe there, what kind of principles of equity or principles of fairness or principles of justice are most important, especially when, you know, as you said, kind of, especially in the first half of the book, um, a lot of the chapters, a lot of the essays are taking up this question of justice and fairness given radical inequality between nations. So what kind of principles of justice are most important for dealing with climate justice, given those forms of inequality?
1: Yeah, that's uh, a totally central question. And I mean, there are a number of them and part of the the philosophical interest here is, is trying to uh, sort out their relations, but I mean, First of all, get, given that the world is really quite radically unequal, and I actually sometimes use that in this strict Tom Nagel sense—Tom, mm-hmm. that's wonderful uh, piece about radical inequality. If if one understands that the way uh, the way Tom does, then the the simple existence of radical inequality is itself a problem. And we should do something about inequalities that are that extreme. I mean, basically this is an inequality where some people are extremely well off. Others are extremely badly off, but the total resources are sufficient that the worst off could be a lot better off without the best off becoming much worse off. That's kind of the short version of, of that idea. And so, I mean, that seems to be extremely uh, plausible, intuitively appealing principle, and so that's one. Uh, another quite different principle that's also highly relevant, I think, is clean up your own mess. <laughs> right? I mean, and I sort of invoke this a lot, but one of the uh, arguments that uh, has been made from the beginning by the poorer countries. Has been where did this problem <laughs> come from? You know, it, it came mostly from the emissions from industrialization. Well, then it's the industrialized countries who've made the biggest contribution to the problem. So, other things equal, uh, you'd think the people who created the problem should be the ones who who bear the burden of of cleaning it up, and uh, and so on. I mean, I uh, I don't want to of go through the whole thing but I, I've tried to uh, articulate some of these uh, particular principles like roughly eliminate radical inequality and clean up your own mess and uh, and then look at what they would mean for dealing with climate change and one of the conclusions I've come to this is a little bit rough and ready is that actually it doesn't make a great deal of difference which of these principles one invokes because they all give you the same conclusion which is roughly that the countries that created the mess which are also the richest countries and therefore have the greatest ability to pay um should bear most of the burden so the 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 main conclusion you get is exactly what's built into the climate change treaty anyway, which is that the economically advanced wealthiest nations should be taking the lead, uh, in, in dealing with the problem, which, uh, is a conclusion that the advanced developing nations, uh, have mostly resisted. Certainly the United States has resisted it. So the general thing is I've tried to look at the principles, articulate the different ones, see how they apply, and what I've actually thought is that they mostly all point in the same direction.
0: Which and, is, I, and I think that's certainly kind of one of the effects of gathering these essays together is that even when you are kind of drawing on different principles, they do converge um on that particular conclusion, and it seems to me that uh, that another implication of the various principles is a rejection of the notion often put forth by the richer countries that we can deal with climate now and we can push questions of justice off into the future. so I was hoping you could perhaps uh, talk how the principles of justice that you're working with and working through in the book um push back against that notion
1: yeah that's that's been and still is an important issue. I mean, one of the most influential books in this field is a book by uh, Eric Posner and David Weisbrot, which I think is called climate change justice. And it argues that poverty is a great problem. We, you know, uh, on the global level, we should do something about it. Climate change is a great problem we should do something about it, but these are two different problems, and we shouldn't mix them together, and if we mix them together, uh, we just make things much harder. But, um, and I agree, it would be uh, simpler if we could separate them, but they're just not separated, I think. Uh, for example, if, if you try to separate them, you'll say uh, maybe something like, let's work out a fair division of the burdens involved in reducing greenhouse gas emissions, then later, if people are having problems that are caused by the uh, continuing climate change, we'll figure out uh, how to share those burdens. But for a poor country with very limited resources, it's not actually uh, rational, I don't think, to contribute a great deal to what the climate people call mitigation, that it, you know, the costs of reducing the emissions when you're not sure who's going to pay for your costs of adapting to the problem, of uh, because if if you invest a lot in dealing with the mitigation, you may then have inadequate resources for your own adaptation, you know, for adjusting to the changes in the, the weather and the flooding and so on. So I think you have to sort that all out uh, in the beginning, which means worrying about questions like, do developed countries which can a lot to the problem of climate change also have an obligation to contribute to the costs of adaptation for the, the poorer countries. So, I mean, that's one example of, of how the, the issues of justice are really embedded in the questions that have to be answered to deal with climate change. And for me, this is one Again, I think this is philosophically interesting because I've I've worked on issues like say nuclear weapons, where I was always trying to say to people, Wouldn't you like to think about the ethical side of this? <laughs> the answer usually was no, you know, not really. Um, because, you know, we want to just think about the strategic stuff. Um you know, I, I think it's a mistake to ignore the the ethical issues there too, but I mean but but it's easier to ignore them. In the climate change case, you you really c- cannot avoid taking positions on international sharing of various interlocking burdens, and those are the questions of justice. So I think
0: you have to talk about them. I do, too. And I think that shines through very clearly in the book. And I think one of the interesting things that a number of these essays about justice and fairness and inequality between nations, um, one of the interesting things that they do are point to specific kind of implications for climate negotiations or for ways that these principles can be embedded in agreements or embedded in things that richer states and or poorer states will do. So I'm wondering if you perhaps you can kind of concretize some of these principles of justice in terms of some of the specific policies or institutional arrangements they might point to.
1: Okay. I 25 years ago, I, I thought, um, you know, renewable energy – Sounded like a good thing for various reasons, but that you could sort of take it or let, or leave it, and that the thing to focus on was uh, reducing the, the greenhouse gas emissions and mainly the carbon dioxide emissions from burning fossil fuel. But then, as, as the uh, science got better and better, it became clear. That, well, let me back up. That what the most important thing that the scientists have, have realized, and this was not clear uh, 20 years ago, is that for any given amount of temperature rise and any given probability of that rise, for example, for a, uh, to have 66% or better chance that the temperature rise won't exceed 2 degrees centigrade, for example, which is kind of the official political thing. For so that much temperature rise, that probability, there's what the scientists have recently, quite recently really, uh, started calling a cumulative carbon budget. So you can specify the total amount of carbon dioxide since the beginning of the industrial revolution that's compatible with that much temperature rise. So it's, cum- the crucial thing is it's cumulative. Okay. There, there are a lot of really absolutely vital implications of this, but let me get back to to the thing about the renewable energy. So in the beginning I thought, you know, renewable energy would be nice, but th- what we really have to do is just get, get down the emissions. But now it's clear that because there's a total maximum cumulative carbon budget compatible with any given temperature rise, and, and this total is cumulative, we really have to totally stop adding carbon dioxide emissions to the atmosphere to stay within the budget. Because as long as we add any additional emissions. We're adding to the cumulative amount of carbon dioxide. So that means if there's to be additional energy use any place, it really has to be alternative energy. It doesn't literally have to be renewable. That is, one possibility is nuclear. and um, But it, it, it definitely can't be from... From fossil fuel. So, this transforms uh, renewable and and other forms of alternative energy from just seeming like, you know, a nice idea to being absolutely essential to dealing with climate change. But then, developing adequate sources of renewable energy is going to take research and development. technological change, investment and somebody's going to have to pay for all this stuff and so we're right back to the questions of justice and so you, by a somewhat uh, elaborate argument, you essentially argued that there's a a moral imperative to uh, move forward with alternative energy and so it's just an entirely different picture from uh, from what we had only a few years ago.
0: Yeah. And sure, did I get off the question you were actually trying to ask me? No, no. That's that's a really, um, I think, a very illuminative answer to the question I was I was trying to get at. Um, and I think another kind of question, and again, where kind of the importance of alternative and renewable energies plays a very important role, is how we approach the question of intergenerational justice, which is something that many of the middle chapters of the book, the chapter on the Kyoto Protocol, for instance, um, and a few other chapters in the middle are trying to get at. So as a way to kind of maybe focus on the very large question of intergenerational justice as it relates to climate change, perhaps you could talk us through Justice between generations, vis-a-vis the idea of something like basic rights.
1: Okay, um, we we realized early on that uh, greenhouse gas emissions and especially carbon dioxide. I, it's it's important to to focus on on the carbon dioxide for reasons I can give if it's of interest that. These emissions are are transnationally zero sum, so to speak i mean obviously if 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 you're adding up the total cumulative emissions and the u s emits a certain amount, then that's an amount that India cannot emit when it develops or will exceed the total so it's it's zero sum transnationally but n- now it's clear because we understand that the carbon budget is cumulative, you have to total it all up, because the carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere. I mean, that's the the kind of main thing to know, is that uh, not all of it, but a, a significant percentage of the carbon dioxide, once it enters the atmosphere, just stays there uh, for millennia. This means that... Uh, Not only can any emissions by the U.S. not be emitted by India, but it means any emissions by this generation cannot be uh, emitted by later generations. In fact, uh, we we only have relatively few decades to stop uh, emitting the carbon dioxide. But if... One accepts that there are among people's rights, some uh, material rights, rights to basic standard of living and drinkable water and, and adequate food and so on. Then it's clear that people will be able to satisfy their rights only if they have enough energy for that much of a, of a healthy Economy, but (laughs) the energy cannot be uh, based on fossil fuel because we need to have ended the carbon dioxide emissions. So, if we rights, I take it, are about all of us together providing protections so that vital interests of people that they can't deal with themselves are protected. We know that future people are going to have a vital interest in having adequate energy for a decent economy but we also know that that energy cannot be based on fossil fuels so they're not going to be able to satisfy their rights unless the world that they come into is a world that has an energy regime that's not undermining the climate. That is not a fossil fuel energy regime but an energy regime based on alternative fuels. So it seems to me when this fits the mold of human rights perfectly, it's a vital need that will be threatened in ways that individuals cannot themselves deal with so that if we have a duty to protect their uh, capacity to, to satisfy these vital interests, then we have a duty to leave them with an energy regime that that will support their economy but not... Uh, wreck their climate. So you have a, I mean, I, as I mentioned I in the beginning, I, I didn't really sort of think in, the, in these terms, but I, it seems to me there is a human rights argument for dealing with climate change and even a human rights argument for renewable energy, which was a connection that I didn't
0: see for a long time. Right, and I mean, and I think you, you put it really pointedly and very insightfully, and this is in the six, Chapter 16, you were you make a comment to the effect that, um, you know, there's a lot of vulnerability faced by future generations, and yet we are the only representatives that they can have right now um, for decisions that are going to affect them and their vulnerability and their basic rights into the future. And I think that this kind of question of intergenerational justice is an interesting thread throughout the book. I was wondering, though, if perhaps there's a contrast um, or a way that kind of you're taking up the question of intergenerational justice that's different than the way it gets played out in international negotiations, the way it gets played out in kind of political and popular discourses, or even in other philosophical discourses.
1: Well, the the main contrast, unfortunately, I think, is it's It's very difficult for people to um, take future generations very seriously. I mean, uh, my friend Dale Jameson uh, has written important stuff about climate change, and one of the things Dale tends to say is that he's not sure evolution has equipped us to deal with the kind of problems that come up here and what the, the various features that that Dale's worried about, but one of them is just the huge time spans. I mean, we're, you know, it's notorious, it's that members of the House tend to think in two year terms, <laughs> members of the Senate think in six year terms, businessmen think in quarters of, you know, years, and, uh, one of the striking, uh, Features about climate change is that there are things that must be done many, many, many years uh, in advance. Uh, for I mean, the two two aspects of this are really very important. I mean, one is uh, if you if you want future generations to have an energy regime that doesn't produce carbon dioxide then that means you need an energy regime that doesn't use coal, gas, and oil. Okay, so we need to move to another energy regime. But, I mean, that's an enormous political, social, economic transformation. I mean, I I think we're talking about an energy revolution on the scale of the Industrial Revolution or the Agricultural Revolution. I mean, this would be... a huge transformation in human affairs. And at best, this is going to take a while. You know, I mean, we, we went from burning wood to burning coal to burning oil, you know, gas. But I mean, each the, from wood to coal was very slow. From coal to oil would have been slow, except we never left the coal behind. I mean, that that's a, a move we we still haven't really made with burning all that stuff at the same time. So to actually, you know, we have super tankers cruising the oceans full of oil. We have gigantic infrastructure with gas pipelines, coal mining, great trains of hundreds of cars carrying the coal. This is all a basic economic structure that has to go away. And, you know, do something totally different and it's going to take a while. So, I mean, I think that's maybe clear enough, but it means if you want our grandchildren's children to have a completely different energy regime and ideally uh, people before that, then we need to be moving right along uh, right now. The, The other, so that's, That's to say it's going to take a long time to produce the solutions. The other, uh, I think, undeniable fact is that in the climate system, there are thresholds, thresholds which we can't locate precisely in advance, but that it's quite clear from all kinds of evidence are there. For example, there's a a threshold at which the ice in Greenland would melt and that would add, I forget the exact number, but you know, six or seven meters, 20 feet or so to the depth of, uh, to the, to the sea level. And, you know, there's a threshold for the thawing of the permafrost in Siberia at which the methane, there's huge amounts of methane that are now captured by the permafrost. But if that melts deeply enough, that methane, which is down there in the sort of rotting <laughs> debris and detritus of um, ancient vegetation, will come up, come out. And methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. So, I mean, one can fairly easily specify a lot. the the nature of a lot of these mechanisms, what we don't know is exactly where uh, or when things will get warm enough for that to happen. But we know there is such a place. And if we don't want to get to that place, then we need to be getting control of the emissions much sooner. So, uh, again, it's not... You know, just as I used to think renewable energy was sort of a nice idea, I mean, you might think doing, doing something for the great-grandchildren is a nice idea, but not just a nice idea. It, it, these things are, the bad things are not going to be prevented, and the good things are not going to happen uh, you know, a century from now unless we get going on them right now. So either we take action to uh, provide adequate life for future generations or it's not going to happen because they can't just, you know, graduate from college and change the energy regime the next two weeks. Uh, this stuff has an enormously long uh, time fuse and either um, we get it moving uh so that it could be finished when they need it, or it's not going to be there when they need it.
0: And I think something that's clear in the particular kind of discussion you just gave us in, in our earlier discussions as well, and certainly in the book, is that there are kind of unique empirical facts about the climate and about climate change that make it a unique problem for a philosophical perspective such as your own that is very Oriented towards the real world. So, I may be hoping you could tell us a little bit about kind of the process you went through um, with your background of engaging the science and kind of what it is about climate change that's empirically and scientifically unique for philosophers and how that's kind of informed your thoughts.
1: Okay. Um, I guess, you know, insofar as I've tried to do any. One thing in my life, it, it has been to try to uh, think about moral issues in a way that takes seriously the way the world actually works. Uh, in 1978, I, I wrote an article about torture and um, the sort of main point of it was philosophers like to talk about ticking bombs and people who only get tortured when there's a ticking bomb, but this is actually not what torture is like. Torture is big bureaucratic systems that involve secret prisons around the world and, you know, institutional, uh, bureaucratized, routinized uh, torture. And you can talk about the hypothetical cases if you want to, but, but if you want policy people get any guidance from you you have to talk about what actually happens so in general i've, I've tried to sort of make a, a point of looking at uh, as much as i could learn about how stuff happens and and functions and you're right in the case of climate uh, there are all these features that are that are monumentally important i mean for your series on uh on global ethics. I mean one one thing one can say about climate change is, is just that it's as thoroughly global as anything possibly can be. You know, the uh, wherever the emissions come from, you know, they may come from a power plant in Schenectady, but they're they're gonna go into a general soup of emissions that will be in the atmosphere of the planet as a whole so there's there's no connection between the location of cause and the location of effect so for example it's quite clear that the arctic is the part of the planet that's warming most but obviously it's not the part of the planet with the most emissions and there's there's just no connection between where the emissions come from and and where the climate change occurs. But there are about seven other similar features. I mean, there's no connection between who does the most emitting and who who suffers the most. Uh, The sea level will... Is, is, is definitely already rising and, and, and no matter what we do, the sea level will rise for quite some time. Who will that affect? It'll affect the people who live at low sea level. But, you know, among the people who live at low sea level are most of the population of Bangladesh, a huge proportion of the population of India who live right along the coast and live in these giant coastal metropolises like Mumbai, and they are going to be bothered by the, uh, not bothered, <laughs> that's an understatement of the year, that their lives are, are in danger of being wrecked by a uh, rising sea level, but many of them don't even have access to electricity and so on. so I don't want to sort of go through the whole uh, litany, but it's a problem where uh, effects extend globally, and uh, it, no one just sort of pays for his own behavior; uh, other people pay for one's one's own behavior. So it's very, very global. But maybe uh, the most striking thing I think is is what I was saying already that there are these enormous. Uh, time lags uh, it'll take a huge amount of time to bring about the social and political transformation that we need and the uh, causal connections affecting the climate system involve enormous uh, time periods for example we, we know that a great deal of the additional heat that's being held into the planet by the additional greenhouse gases is not showing up in the, uh, the measurements of average global temperature. So where's the heat? Well, a lot of it's in the ocean and the ocean has this enormous inertia. So you get, you get warming of the, uh, shallower part of the ocean. that they often say separate the top 700 meters from below 700 meters. So you, the top 700 meters get warmer. Then over centuries, that warmth goes down into the deep ocean and you get some kind of equilibrium. I mean, not that all the water in the ocean gets to be the same temperature, but you, it's always warmer on the surface, But but you get an equilibrium. Then, you know, after some more centuries, there starts to be an equilibration between the oceans and the atmosphere. And and so some of that heat will come out of the ocean into the atmosphere. And that might be, you know, a millennium or so after we've stopped greenhouse gas emissions and stopped directly warming the air. But the air will still keep warming because this heat's coming up out of the ocean. And so on. Uh, that the other main thing is just these—you re, you reach these thresholds way before you uh, r- realize it. Which, by the way, I, I think often means that uncertainty is a reason for action. I, the clearest example of this is that last year in 2014, two different scientific studies concluded. That the melting of the West Antarctic ice sheet, which this is not all of Antarctica now, but, but it's one big chunk of it. They, they concluded that it's now irreversible. There's nothing we can do, uh, not, nothing, you know, literally absolutely nothing that would make sense in terms of the physics of the world to, to stop that ice sheet from melting. And it looks as if that was already true in the early 1990s. So, you know, we lived for the best part of a quarter of a century without realizing that we'd already passed the threshold for the melting of the West Antarctic ice sheet if this is all true. I mean, we need a lot more investigation, but these studies look very good. The point, I, whatever is the... Exact truth about the Western Arctic ice sheet. This, what this is, you can go past a point of no return long before you know it. I think that means that the the argument that from uncertainty, which in American politics is is usually mobilized as a reason not to do anything. You know, we should we need to do more research because we don't know. But actually, in many of these cases, we indeed don't know, and that's why we should get busy. Because we know that these thresholds are out there. We don't know when we'll reach them, but it's very bad news when you reach them. And so, by the way, I, I don't—I don't think one should take the melting of the West Antarctic ice sheet as a, as a reason for fatalism. I mean, it that does mean. If it's right, that we've created one disaster in terms of sea level, it it means the sea level is going to rise a lot more than we would like, and, and that probably we can't do anything about it. And of course, that's very bad news, but there are lots of other thresholds, which we probably haven't reached yet, but which are equally important. And so I think rather than getting discouraged because we failed in the case of the western arctic ice sheets which did fail but what we should conclude from that i think is we should become energized about these other thresholds because that was one battle but but this is a is a big war and there are lots of other battles there's still the methane and the Siberian permafrost and and lots of other stuff and it may it will make a huge difference of uh, whether we pass these
0: thresholds or not. Right and perhaps we can start to conclude as already taken up much of your time um, by thinking a little bit and talking a bit about the final chapter in the book. Um, climate hope implementing the exit strategy so could you maybe give us kind of a gloss of what an exit strategy might look like and perhaps especially as you take it up in the chapter in terms of guaranteeing access to energy for the poor nations
1: okay that the climate hope was an attempt to draw a lot of this uh, stuff together and so um i've, I've already uh alluded to some extent to a lot of it, but the, the fundamental problem, and, and this is really the fundamental problem of all my work, is how can we deal with climate change, which means using less energy that emits greenhouse gases and not prevent developing countries from developing where it appears that involves, they're using more energy, and so I mean, I think fairly obviously, if some people need to use more energy, but it can't be energy that emits greenhouse gases, then it needs to be energy which doesn't emit greenhouse gas gases, i.e., alternative energy. And this means that, insofar as we um, as we have a, a positive duty let's say to contribute to development we have a positive duty to uh, underwrite alternative energy but one of the my main arguments is this isn't just about positive duties I mean I, I did argue in in basic rights that we have positive duties toward people's subsistence rights but in the case of climate change our way of dealing with greenhouse gas emissions, We have several particular ways, but they all involve raising the price. We can have carbon tax, we can have cap and trade, or we could have just straight regulation. The underlying mechanism here is it becomes more expensive or otherwise more difficult to use the fossil fuels people will use less. Well, that's fine. Not only fine, I mean, it's absolutely essential. We, we have to use less. But what about the people in the developing countries uh, who need more energy? If all we do is make fossil fuel and its consequent emissions more expensive, we'll actually be getting in the way of development Because the only thing that... uh, I mean, think concretely of India. India doesn't have much oil or gas. They have a few nuclear plants. What they have is mountains, literally, mountains and mountains of really dirty coal. And so their cheapest energy source is to burn that coal. But if, if we take action to reduce the burning of coal, which we absolutely must do because it's by far the worst uh, source of carbon dioxide, we're going to make it very hard for the poorest Indians even to get reliable electricity. And, you know, half a billion Indians don't have reliable electricity. So we wouldn't just be failing to carry out some positive duty to help them. If, if we're cracking down on coal, which we must do, and that's it, then we're interfering with the only kind of development they can afford. So it seems to me that besides any positive duty, we have a negative duty not to carry out the energy revolution from fossil fuels to alternative energy in such a way that we absolutely prevent the Indians from uh, having economic development to a level that will enable their poor to just have reliable electricity. So um, I mean, this is, this is one concrete example, I think of, of what I earlier was saying was a, kind of surprising moral obligation to promote renewable energy, which doesn't seem like the kind of thing you'd have a, a moral obligation to do. But but if you have any, even a moral obligation not to get in the way of, of Indian development, but we need to do what we can to keep them from burning all that coal, then... We have to accompany our efforts to keep them from burning that coal with doing what we can to uh, bring affordable and accessible uh, alternative energy. For example, uh, you know, villages in Italy now, uh, sorry, in uh, India now will sometimes have a a village set of solar panels. And uh, the... uh, Villages, villagers will bring their cell phones in to the, where the, the solar panels are and charge their cell phones and then they, you know, it's an enormous benefit to them to have the cell phones. So they're getting, uh, you know, a community source of, uh, battery recharging from the, from the solar panels. If we can, assist them in, in getting uh, an array of solar panels in every village, that that has all kinds of benefits. I mean, they, they don't need to get their electricity from burning coal. They don't even need to install all the power lines and all that stuff that goes with the traditional electricity grid. So we enable them to do a, a so-called leapfrog technologically, improve their lives, and prevent them from increasing their emissions because, as everybody knows, China has developed quickly, but it's added a huge amount to the cumulative carbon budget. So, to be fair to them, they're also doing a lot of renewable energy. It's just China's a big place. They're doing a lot of everything. But India's a big place, too, and they'll do a lot of everything if uh, if we don't take measures to help them uh move to a focus on the energy sources that don't undermine the planet
0: thank you and now before we close i was wondering this is such a such a very rich book um if there's anything we didn't get the chance to discuss that you'd like to talk about
1: what one thing we haven't actually talked about very much is that i think there are implications here for what uh for, for the appropriate interpretations of Of sovereignty, that's in a way just part of of what I was saying about it being so global. But, you know, we we tend to think that um, well, you know, the world consists of nation states. They they all claim sovereignty, which means um, some autonomy in their domestic affairs. And obviously that's a good thing up to some point and in some ways. But in, in 1992, when the U.S. signed the, uh, the climate change agreement, um, President Bush, first President Bush said something like, well, we're, we're ready to do what we can about the climate as long as it doesn't interfere with the U.S. economy. But I think that's an, that's a traditional understanding of, of sovereignty that each nation can have its own economy. But having your own economy means having your own energy policy. But if having your own energy policy means choosing your own sources of energy, then that means it's up to you whether you want to cooperate with uh, with ending greenhouse gas emissions. And I don't think that's part of sovereignty anymore. Uh, and so I think we really need, it, we, we can't just sort of get rid of sovereignty. There's all kinds of bad um, interventions going on. So, you know, this needs some careful philosophical work, but we, we need to rethink sovereignty, keep protection against outside uh, demands that, that ought to be resisted, but make room for uh, kinds of energy policy that uh, are compatible with dealing with climate. So, that's one thing, but uh, actually, you've you've very nicely brought out most of the
0: of the main things. Oh, well, thank you. It was a, very much a pleasure to read. And so, one final question: I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on.
1: Well, mostly just going on with the uh, justice toward future generations, and especially this problem of. Uh, passing what I've, I've now started calling the, the date of last opportunity, that illustration about the, the uh, West Antarctica ice sheets, we, we know now that in some cases, uh, the last time something can, well, we, we know for sure that there is a last time when something can be prevented. Uh, often we don't know what when that last time is, but we have very good reason to think it might be either now or quite soon. And so this fairly obviously raises these problems about uh, do we have obligations to take what you might think of as uh, stronger measures than the measures any old generation (laughs) would have on just general principles toward future generations. Might might there be something like a a special responsibility to try to avoid passing additional points of no return. And how stringent is that? I, I mean philosophers will see this is this is one of these problems where if you're not careful you end up with such strong obligations for people that they can't have lives of their own and, and all they do is you know, serve as tools to prevent the problems of the future so, so it's another case where we, we need good philosophers to, uh, to formulate the thing correctly but that's my sort of main worry is what about these uncertain points of no return how much responsibility is, is generated by our understanding that they're out there
0: well, we'll we'll look out for for future work along those lines. Henry Shu, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Global Ethics and Politics to talk about climate justice.
1: You're welcome, John. I enjoyed it. Thank you.